0: Welcome to my podcast, In The Know, my series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no tell. This time on In The Know, I've got a legend, John Neshheim. He was one of the first Silicon Valley people, period. He was the treasurer of National Semiconductor, the first generation of huge chipset companies, and he rode wave after wave as a venture capitalist and researcher in Silicon Valley about the patterns that drive entrepreneurship. Now he teaches at Cornell, and he was kind enough to speak to me to match his beautiful Northern California location. I did it while I was walking around in Phoenix. So you'll hear some birds in the background. And for his part, he has patterns and science to drop. So powerful that it got me started in entrepreneurship, one of the first important books I read when I really thought about starting my own company was his book, High Tech Startup. Let's hear from John Nesheim. Hi, John.
1: Greetings. Good to hear from you.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much for agreeing to be on In the Know with me. I um, didn't prepare you very much, but I think you've been preparing for the better part of 40 years and maybe even longer to tell me a few things about how to build something great. It was a pleasure to hear from you that you feel surprised, too, that the stuff that started in Silicon Valley in the 60s and 70s seems to have swept the entire world.
1: Yes, the phenomena has expanded east to west and now is headed south, both into Africa as well as into South America. I wasn't sure I'd see all of that in my lifetime. I entered Silicon Valley in 1976 with the first semiconductor company starting and um, a lot of prune trees around. We now have all the prune trees gone and are all buildings filled with startups, and they've spread north to San Francisco and around the world along the way. The joy I had was really a privilege to be out there in the earliest days when engineers were arriving, not knowing better, and uh, with some amazing ideas. They never looked back. In observing those uh, early stage CEOs and founders and wobbling companies, as a young man, I was able to begin to see a pattern setting in and that triggered some seminal research that uh, subsequently produced a report on Silicon Valley, what it was all about, and then morphed into the first book, uh, High-Tech Startup. Well, that's it. I mean, that's it. That's where
2: I came to learn about you and the word pattern. It's all about the word pattern. I mean, in the early days, as far as I have learned reading about it, hearing stories from folks that were there, it was very much an improvised process a bunch of good things seem to have happened and over time there were 10 and then 100 and then a thousand or more companies that were getting produced by Silicon Valley and by the time I got to it I was finishing in um, graduate school I was doing philosophy I finished PhD at Stanford and I had partly chosen to be at Stanford to be around folks that could teach me a thing or two and I even stumbled into a, a few startups and one that that got quite big without really knowing anything about how all that people would say back then is you can't teach entrepreneurship, you just have to do it. And I have always been very skeptical of that, and over time I've become increasingly convinced that it's just not correct. There is a theory and a practice and a lot to learn and to improve. And your book, when I came across it, used hard copy, ordered off Amazon, maybe 2003, was the first time I saw such a total effort to collect and routinize the patterns of information and in financing. It was amazing.
1: Well, it was a lot of fun. And uh, watching people that were pretty bright, that had a real commitment, buzzword is passion today, to make something very significantly beneficial from these little transistors was what drove them. And uh, there were immigrants uh, from Hungary and other places in Europe, as well as India, as well as in the U.S., and that also became a pattern. Uh, people with immigrant status have been and continue to be an intimate part of this uh, process. Um, the techie dominance uh, has also continued, and therefore uh, has a disproportionate portion of uh, males involved. But the transition into utilizing technology into the retail world has brought to very large proportions of females in. Yeah, that uh, is a big that is yeah. a big changing force, isn't it? Monster really, really is. In many ways, I think females uh, take more risk than males. I think they have less to lose, if you will, in the performance area, and much to gain in in other areas. And they're astute at uh, managing, multitasking. Or guys that uh, focus, women I call them narrow minded, struggle a lot. Often I get founders that I coach that are feeling overwhelmed as guys, and amazed at uh, how women can keep uh, so much chaos uh, up in the air and Spinning the plates on a lot of sticks compared to some of the guys. I, I want to spend some more time on some of these newer directions
2: and what they mean. I thought it might be nice though to sketch the thumbnail of your story. As far as I recall, you know, I teach your book now in, at Columbia where I have a couple of different startup classes and um, I've been getting refreshed on some of my early learnings from the stuff. But I, I guess you were a CFO finance leader
1: at one of the big early semi companies the first full-time treasurer over at national semiconductor and um, I got a chance to then see all of the founding CEOs Intel AMD Fairchild um, etc firsthand and um, doing that I was able to watch and learn what they were doing individually and um, group that came together for me, all of a sudden, the light began to come on that there were things they were repeatedly doing. And then as the companies that use those uh, chips began to put them into boards and beginning then the integration forward process, they also were repeating these same processes.
2: And oh, at these layers stage. from the chip setup of
1: yep. uh, experimentation, innovation. How do they raise the money? How are they managed? How many account? How do they go to yep. markets? Uh, they're probably half dozen so-called VCs, starting with Art Rock when I was there, and by the time a company called Apple got started, there were probably about two dozen that were very active and organized and had huge funds of almost $5 million to invest. I remember one time uh, Pierre Lemond at National Semiconductor said, don't worry, we won't have to worry about any more chip startups, it'll take at least a million dollars to finance them and nobody will ever risk that kind of money. <laughs> So we end up, you know, with a a serial transition in in each of these waves. And as this transition takes place, wave after wave, it produces marketplace, which is enlarged in units by a zero and dollars by a zero. And each order of magnitude produces this whole fresh new wave of entrepreneurs. And while the other guys already established are working like mad to scale their companies and then the next arrivals. That seems to be one of the patterns, you know, spot a wave, catch it like surfing not too early, not too late, ride it into the beach successfully, don't fall off your board and then get off and and go back and try it again.
2: So you started seeing the patterns as an operator, I guess with the cool head of the purely quantitative vantage point, watching the money move. And then you spent quite some time with venture firms. Is that when you started this research where you started
1: putting together big data sets on Yeah, that's right. I found that uh, what shocked me was that a lot of the venture guys had no idea what uh, percentage ownership should be asked for or demanded in the seed round and A round. And so I went into archives, which were brutal to get in those days before the Internet. I went into archive boxes at state treasury departments in order to get the original paper documents. And I discovered that um, it was a game of being a big company big pond and a tiny fish that paid off it wasn't owning the highest percentage but letting that dilute over time as the company grew faster than the dilution rate and in quantifying that it shocked a lot of people that this thing was generating founders individual founders uh they were owning less than 10 percent of their company but worth in those days tens of millions of dollars
2: so those are two critical patterns that i, I actually think continue to be true the first one I guess it's like Andy Ratcliffe who's often associated with the idea that market beats everything.
1: Yes. your first point? Yeah, it's exactly right. You've hit it right on the head and very astutely. Order magnitude, of course, has grown by a couple of zeros since then, but uh, the percentages still are there. Do they vary? Absolutely right. A bootstrap that's successful uh, early stage Dell morphing into many other along the way can obtain more percentage ownership for the founders. But these new unicorns, for instance, are running out not five years to liquidity event, but now 10 years and more. And life science companies, ditto, because the FDA trials. And so the percentages are still dropping down there. John, you're measuring that success by the
2: the end up ownership of founders by the time of exit.
1: Yeah, exactly. But presumably
2: also by total value creation of the company or value creation to the founders.
1: No, in this case, uh, to the founder's percentage per se along the way, the dollar amount has varied a great deal now. We have a full range of small, medium, and large, and giant uh, unicorns in absolute size. But the ownership percentage is astoundingly similar along the way. It's rare that a founding CEO, if he survives three years, most are gone in three years in my database, will own more than 10%. That doesn't mean they can own 30%, but it's unusual. It's quite rare. Yeah, I mean, even Bezos, uh, who perhaps is one of the great outliers, is at maybe fifteen percent collectively. The
2: Bezos family, uh, all these years later, and and probably the average is seven, according to the tables back in the day. Yeah, exactly right. How do you quantify the big market point? So what you're saying is, if you want to end up owning a lot of your successful company, can't predict for sure which ones will be successful, but if you'd like Mm -hmm. to, choose a huge market.
1: Yeah, yeah, and then what happens is is really also interesting. I found that. Regardless of new industry, by the time the liquidity event occurred for the first of those that made it in a new category, uh, whether it was a chips uh, personal computers, genetic engineering, social networking, and so forth, the company that um, got there owned around thirty percent of the share of the target marketplace. Then there were two other companies, one or two typically two, that uh, were Following didn't get there quite as fast, but they owned about half the share, something in the teens, around 15% or so. And then there were all the others that didn't really make it. and So it was nicknamed the gorilla, two chimpanzees, and 12 starving monkeys. And so the monkeys get bought up really (laughs)
2: late. As a a point of comparison, someone like Google is 30% of global advertising and maybe Facebook is in the low 20s, maybe they're number two, or maybe there's an upset happening. And there's nobody else that's more than single digits on, on nope. digital, even the incumbents are all fragmented down to zero. And ironically,
1: unfortunately, in the first two waves, the chip wave and then the PC wave, those monkeys were the ones that the giants bought finally saying, well, I guess there really is a market here and we'll buy them and their technology. And then we're a big company and you know, we'll have a big share of market. And of course, that never happened. So, picking up the weaker players doesn't turn it around. No, it doesn't at all. And so, you're seeing, I think, a good new change. And that is that the bigger companies have that recognized that's not so smart. And so, people are buying sooner companies. Cisco started buying them at 12 and 15 engineer size companies and then started a few internally. Intel decided to invest in a huge number. Directly as a VC arm and one of the few that succeeded early as a corporate investor Financial returns, but perhaps not transformative, right? Intel doesn't have
2: through acquisition or through investment a franchise anything remotely
1: Exactly right, exactly right And so what happens is it's done for strategic reasons more than anything else We'll see what happens with the automotive industry There's going to be a lot of carcasses uh, in the next 10 years there With their investments into this autonomous driving uh, world, I nonetheless would expect the same fallout that almost all will disappear in some form or another of the startups that have gone into new category, in this case, autonomous vehicles. And you'll end up with this classic uh, gorilla and a couple of chimpanzees that uh, come through along the way. And those numbers are pretty solid. I can show you serious research that uh, shows them.
2: Just before you get to that, I mean, I would guess that off the top of my head, I could name at least 12 generations of major entrepreneurial activity, you know, from the the early memory chips onwards to the present, and maybe you're tracking like three dozen or or four dozen. And so you have a quite big data set to say what's going to happen the 49th or 50th time in the case of something like automotive.
1: Yes, exactly right. We always say it's going to be different this time, but um, it just seems to be a, a real consistent pattern. The whole process of then buy and succeed, merge into a big one, chances of meeting or exceeding expectations is 17%. That's a lot of serious research studies. And so you have venture capital risks in any acquisition as well. As a result of that, this is all still very, very high risk by most measures of, of corporate entities even though they're very large, the Ubers and so forth, nonetheless, they still carry that level of uh, risk to success or not along the way. So it's still, I think, is the kind of thing an entrepreneur who's going to found a company can count on numerically. And in planning forward, which I recommend they do, how to then dilute and uh, share the equity. I think there are enough people around now to be able to plot that path, reserve enough for stock options for a, a large number of new employees, and still end up with a very handsome percentage in absolute wealth for the um, founding entrepreneur yeah, and for the entrepreneur and,
2: and you know I guess one of the lenses I've been using as I've been talking to folks in this most recent investigation of how to build something big are some of the patterns that whether they're actually constraints or simply endogenously created outcomes of some of the internal mechanisms that may not be all fully Mm described about things Mm -hmm. like incentives and competition. But when you look at those patterns from the outside in, from the inside out, what should you do? I guess you're pointing out that you're likely to fail when you start a new venture. I think people knew that and you have a a fairly precise number that resembles the towering odds against you, 83% chance that you don't get there. And yet the mindset of the entrepreneur
1: has to be to go for it.
3: Yeah, I think that's exactly right.
1: I really do. And therein comes another observation I studied over the years and found true. The companies whose founders said, I'm going for IPO were the ones most likely to succeed. The others that said, I'm going to sell the business had much less success. I liken that into the metaphorical person that says, I'm here to the coach to try out for the Olympic team. And the coach says, why? And the the guy says, I'm here to try for the bronze medal. (laughs) And that doesn't go over so very well. And it seems to be that that attitude, I call it now, not willingness, but attitude of taking on that kind of goal produces the best result. Now, one of the structuring
2: ideas that I've been seeing more and more of in just the general intellectual landscape and a bit in entrepreneurship, I guess I wish I heard more of it, and I'm checking this with folks, is the distinction between a fox and a hedgehog. Is this an idea that you've run across before, foxes and hedgehogs?
1: Well, I'd like to hear your version of it. Well, it's an idea that I guess is
2: 50 or 60 years old. It got revived by a philosopher from Oxford named Isaiah Berlin, and he was sort Mm -hmm. of spitballing over an ancient Greek poet's line, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. And taking that one little line and thinking about his other colleagues and intellectual circles, and then over time, even decision-making and forecasting, which is the way that Philip Tetlock has used it, and myself in entrepreneurship. It's a way of describing the world. There are these sort of nibblers that touch a lot of different topics and have a bit of expertise and join these loosely connected parts together. And then there's these other empire building experts. You might characterize it as a generalist or a specialist. You might characterize it as a a sort of a pluralist or an ideologue, someone who's ready to have a lot of different mental models in mind or somebody who wants to go and build the final and complete theory of something, Mm -hmm. the single best Mm -hmm. search engine. And in entrepreneurship, you sort of see both. I mean, it's easy to think of venture people as being foxes, sort of sniffing around and looking for all the different little tactics and trying to place bets on a bunch. And it's easy to see sometimes a biotech or hardcore engineering type founder as a hedgehog who has a totalizing vision of the world. There are many varieties. And one way that Tetlock and some of his community around good judgment have put it is a fox is pretty good at seeing patterns and making predictions because they don't go all in on any individual bet. Uh, but when it's time for action, when you have to take the hill, when you have to rally the people, and you have to point people in a direction, often the hedgehog is the one that has a lot of credibility. It's the kind of person the press wants to write about, someone who speaks in great certainty with absolute outcomes. And the modulating between these two poses seems to be possible for certain folks. There's an anecdote about Eisenhower on the day before D-Day. Rallying his people, telling them that we would win, and in his back pocket, the way Philip Tetlock tells the story, is a uh, is a letter of resignation that he Mm -hmm. planned to send the president on the on the day of the landing if it hadn't gone well. And I wonder how you see these two modes of thinking around Silicon Valley and entrepreneurship, and how you might um, characterize venture people, great founders, the kind of hobbyist founders, serial founders, the kind of people that you have been studying for so long.
1: Well, I think that. We have to be careful to avoid stereotyping that the media rushes to when they have a deadline for their blog or their uh, paper or their uh, show. Uh, Give it some thought. I find that the stages that the startup goes through are pretty classical. There's a chaos stage early trying to figure out what you should really produce compared with your idea, how difficult it will to make techie side, and then whoever really wants it, the marketing. When the dust settles on that, proof of concept, uh, proof of market, et cetera, trial and errors, uh, skin your knees, bloody your nose, etc. Then you can decide what product you're going to make and get ready to launch it. When that's done. That phase has a certain kind of person in it that just loves that kind of chaos and opportunity to be creative. And then boom, you launch the company and you've got to focus on it, that one product or service. And that kind of focus is the real challenge to uh, some people but i think uniformly the entrepreneurs that do well truly can do that they can tighten up in that one thing and focus 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 on it that phase two the launch how fast will this grow how much can it scale then is the next challenging phase and the people that do well in that are i find are more like builder people than highly creative types the founder may still be there and is learning managing classically as a first timer but these people coming in are often called executioners of a business plan executed plan or builders knowers there's various nomenclature but they're now needed to actually build a company co together Panny from brad breaking brad together and that produces when you can bring them in the quality do you not i've been coaching startup recently and uh, Three people started it, and now they're bringing in senior people in their 40s, and these people are barely in their uh, late 20s. And that maturing takes place second phase. And then if it catches on, if you don't have to do a great change, a pivot, uh, morph, etc., then all of a sudden you switch to the third phase, and you go from selling to taking orders. The word is spread so rapidly that this thing is hot as a pistol, and that's why startups never advertise that are successful. You can't build a brand by advertising, and they just go off and scale like crazy. And that's where you need a third kind of a person that can handle that rapid, monstrous change, where a lot of things happen so fast it's astonishing. So, like specialty teams in American football for different situations, I think you get three levels or three kinds of uh, three stage uh, people along. Through it all, the media makes it all sound like there was this one great idea and that really made it happen, and boom, we got a Facebook. But along the way, there are so many things they encounter and change and adjust that when you look back at the original idea, oogling uh, girls in uh, university, it's sure a lot different than what became the so-called business plan for a company like a Facebook. And this I found in company after company after company. There was an old-school notion uh, in Silicon Valley,
2: and I guess I wasn't there for it. But it was the time when a company needed grown-ups, so you brought in the hired gun CEO, so to speak. And I remember a great, very short blog post from Mark Andreessen back from when he actually did write blog posts, a handful of them before he launched his venture firm. I think the last in his series on startups was um, about when to hire a professional CEO. The one-line post was don't. I feel that the culture of Silicon Valley has become much more founder-centric than it was in the past, but maybe that's just uh, some cultural lore that I'm missing is clearly the jobs evolve across the stages you mentioned. Absolutely, I think we all agree with that as part of the Silicon Valley consensus. Do you think the people Need to change, or can the founder be the person who does change from one style to another?
1: What case? I'm finding is that um, there's much more of a proclivity to bring in so called senior wisdom than CEO know how. By that, I mean a person that can uh, wisely, quietly, privately talk to the founder, knee shaken and um, dry throat, about what's happening to the business. and um, describe the reality of both that person, what's going on psychologically, uh, as well as in the business, so that the wheels stay on while this thing is uh, growing and going like crazy. And that seems to be more successful than the experiments with bringing in the so-called pros. Schmidt was brought in to take care of this thing that was growing like crazy when the Google boys had almost lost control. And that was a wise move, but he didn't act like a classical CEO. Uh, and you can get that in the sense, the book that he wrote about Bill Campbell. You'll hear more of that so called mentor guidance approach to things than um, the, let's call it, dictatorial CEO approach.
3: Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin, but that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space, is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, a good workspace, then you're in business.
0: So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening.
2: And although his title was CEO, he was there to sort of broker and make peace
0: and smooth through the deployment of big
1: ideas coming out of the two founders. Yeah, exactly right. And so not unlike a stage director or director of a movie, uh, Clint Eastwood, that's directing a movie of all sorts of extremely capable people that can really go off the rails and somehow keep them together and produce a, a production, a movie along. And
2: Sandberg could be another example from recent yeah. memory of Facebook. Yeah. The um, first couple of patterns that you mentioned, I think, uh, have the ring of truth. And certainly your data, even from 20 years ago, was showing it. It's impressive how durable it is. The idea that going for a huge market is the way to win and that there's a certain natural level of ownership that ends up for founders. They've done well in that sort of 5 to 15% range around 10 That seems like an important pattern too. Does it mean that some of the other lore about team first
1: or culture beats X are mistaken? Well, I think the, the danger is to kind of generalize. One thing I found true with companies that uh, continued over time continuity to do well together, even though they may have major business struggles, were those that were able to work together well. And that's the inherent nature of what culture ought to be like. It isn't a foosball table, but it's a, a way of working together. And I think that's why the veteran CEOs at the Sequoias and Kleiners and so forth recognized that they would invest aggressively in companies where at least uh, two or three of the original founders had worked together before someplace, knew each other very well. The forming we of the... risk cult- that sort of team formation stuff. Yeah, early on, the risk is reduced greatly then that the spirit of the whole idea, which is going to really change a lot, as they know and experience, will stay together in the company alone. That's the flame you want to keep alive in the business. When that goes out, nobody knows how to relight it. I've tried, others have, and it just doesn't work. You've got to keep that original idea for what makes a Yahoo Yahoo uh, alive in the company. And even it means you step aside and become chief Yahoo, as Jerry Yang did. Nonetheless, that spirit stays alive in a company, and that's terribly important. And that's part of this concept we call culture along the way. It's more than management style and treating people, but it's all of the above. But the whole idea is that you spend time deliberately making it happen. It isn't an accidental thing. And all the serial entrepreneurs I know, two, three, four startups, start on day one, building culture. How we do things around here, things that are policy. Generally, under normal conditions, we do the following, et cetera. These are important attributes. I was talking to a life science guy that sold his company to Roche recently, one of my former students, and a nine-figure deal. He said that they put down the principles by which the startup would be managed on the fourth day of their getting together. They treat it seriously. And that seems to be the, oh, I don't know if you want to metaphorically call it cushion or, or walls or guidance system, but um, it really makes a big difference.
2: There's this line that people like to quote for all situations from Tolstoy's Anna Karenina about happy families. I think it's uh, all happy families are the same and all unhappy families are miserable in their own unique way. And the joke in startups, I guess, that I sometimes hear and I often actually repeat, is that all failed startups are the same. Since they fail for the same three, four reasons, right? I mean, you run out of money, the founders fight, no one wants the product the other half of that line is supposed to be. But all successful startups are successful in their own unique way. And I wonder if that's really true. I mean, we're sketching some patterns on selection of market. And on the creation of culture, is it your view, the same things need to be done each time? You know, there's a thing it means to be a Yahoo, there's a thing it means to be a Googler. And companies need to sort of lay out the same sets of, of answers to questions every time they need to put a, a, a personal identity on it, I guess. But Isn't it a lot of the same stuff? Yeah, I think it is.
1: I think it's almost generic, and it takes the form like a cake mix you put together. for The cake turns out differently for each person told to bake a cake, but it's still a cake, and it still has to taste good to people. They have to work together well. They have to rally around these uh, principles that guide them every day, and we don't do that here, and we always do that here is what it becomes. Therein lies the uniqueness that you referred to and companies that succeed then by definition have a unique way about it. It can get to the extreme where Google is suffering right now as a very mature company from having that culture so strong that it it almost rebels against any reforms, so to speak, that the top management wants to make. But nonetheless, early on, it's more of a guidance under extreme conditions that keeps people on track. They know without having to check in should I do this? Should I do that? Not do that in an interview with a person. What do I do about this customer that's irate that the product just started on fire in his laboratory and so forth? Under those conditions, then they are comfortable taking risk doing things.
2: Now, on the market selection, we had some fairly tangible metrics. a market worth billions where a leader could have hundreds of millions in revenue, let's say. A typical distribution of the reward for being the winner which doesn't always mean being first. It sounds like from what I recall in your work, it's actually often not the first who is the winner. So there's these nice, really tangible guidelines. On the development of a people culture and a team and a leadership organization, is there stuff from your work that you'd point to as markers of it going well, things that you can say to measure or patterns that start at one head count, 10, 100, 1,000?
1: 1, yeah, I think count, that's 10. very good. I'm, I'm- currently in the process of documenting a lot of that and see if I can pull it together in a book form. That's one of the things that is terribly important. And The first measure is when you've hired someone that's a stranger and within a year or 18 months that stranger is leaving and that starts to set a pattern, then I think you've got yourself a real problem on your hands with a company and a culture along the way because they mostly will go because of culture rejection. Starting with a founder CEO along the way. The second one is that you get people coming into the enterprise that will not identify with that um, business uh, with the, the passion that the others have to use the nomenclature of the day, namely that they don't believe that it's much more than a very interesting job where they can grow and learn something. And if you get too many of those in the company and the company culture shifts and then the level of quality work done between each other uh, drops. And then you start getting all sorts of infighting about productivity. You get turf battles and, well, I'm the CMO and I should go to Tokyo to take care of that customer problem just because I'm in New York for a week and can't handle it right now and the customer is screaming doesn't mean that I shouldn't be the one to go, et cetera. And those are the death knell then for this highly responsive entity we call the new enterprise, They can jump onto problems like that, in this example, customer problem, and make it fix it and get it done really fast. Those seem like really great markers.
2: I mean, if a company is going to be big, it's got to be able to grow, It's got to be able to attract people. And these two first markers of rejection by the antibodies are probably a sign that you won't be able to continue to add amazing people. I was speaking with uh, Safi Bakal, who uh, started a few companies and um, recently wrote a book called Loon Shots. And he went into a whole complicated theory that was quite interesting around the differential incentives for people inside the company. Can you profit more from the company's success or from your own personal success relative to others? And his view is that a lot of that has to do with incentive schemes, how much equity, how much comp, how flat is the organization? And I
1: wonder if you've observed those patterns in your work. Well, I think what is the most powerful is what drives the person coming into that new enterprise for a personal career growth. The trick is that um, people don't naturally grow in companies, they get used, meaning their skills have to be immediately applicable and useful. Rubber meets the road, boom, 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 make it happen. The entry level, I'm going to learn it over the following year, doesn't do well in these startups in the earliest stages until they're almost pre-IPO. It can eat up a, a human being along the way. And so uh, the self-centered approach, meaning I can succeed here and, and show what I can do, then brings people in that are quite confident of media delivery within an organization that's definitely going to grow and expand and get bigger and bigger and bigger and leave a lot of room for career growth, laterally up, down, sideways, whatever the direction concept you have in, in mind along the way. And So a leading indicator of, in- of the cultural
2: strength of the organization is its recruiting
1: health and its retention health. Bingo, exactly. And so the first test I found the top VCs will make of a first-time CEO is, have you ever recruited anybody? Of the so-called veterans, meaning have done more than one startup, tell me about your recruiting skills. The data that I found um, surprised me. It showed that the number one reason that startups were unable to achieve their growth plans was that they could not find enough of the top talent they wanted fast enough. That was the real constraint. I went around asking people, why aren't you growing faster? And in the end, every single one of them was constrained by, I can't get enough people in here fast enough. Well, I can certainly resonate with that. Once you've solved the other problems
2: in your business, the only obstacle is whether you can attract enough of the right people to push that opportunity to its maximum potential. I guess the other problems can be fatal if you've chosen a small market. And we've been doing a little tour of my sort of four points that I consider the real bones of of a promising young company. Certainly, the market is hugely important. So are the people, the founders first, and then as the team grows, and I guess the next one I want to investigate with you a little bit is the product. Where in the hierarchy would you put the product? We've all met the entrepreneur who's invented something in their research assignment somewhere, and they've got an incredible product. Maybe it's a big market. Who knows? But maybe the market will come if you make it. I wonder how you think about those.
1: You know, yeah, that's, that's the, the, the best point of the night, so to speak, some people would say. Um, as Silicon Valley finally became respected for something more than a bunch of crazy engineers, Regis McKenna, who had pioneered the way you pioneer a, a brand into a success from nothing without advertising, was asked to write an article, Harvard Business Review, and he wrote it entitled it, Marketing is Everything, and became a classic. And I think what today happens is that um, the data shows that it, the best technology company almost always is third or worst in the success rankings at the end, and it's the best marketed that wins and so what does all that mean i've come to choose a cutesy label for it i think that every single product to succeed has to have wow in it w-o-w exclamation point capital letters red flashing neon that's necessary conceptually and in fact so that when this product is introduced to its market people are so excited about it that they naturally do all of the tweets they naturally do the the Facebook social networking, spread the emails, et cetera, Instagram, and so on. That's how the brand gets rolling along the way. And if you don't have wow boy, work on it till you got it or shut the doors down. Now, don't. there is a
2: school on Sand Hill Road that just looks for wow, but it seems like they wait for wow.
1: Yep, yep. There are later stagers now that used to be first stagers seed A's that are now BCers that have felt that they must reduce their Risk in the portfolios, they got so hammered in the dot-com bomb days that they pulled to the later stage. And that opened the door for a new wave, whether it's first round or 500 and Y Combinator to jump in. Some would say spray and pray, but they succeeded at the A rounds and the seed rounds along the way. And so you end up with different approaches to when is the right risk level for me to come in. As a result, we got a wave about 10 years ago, starting where you had to prove something, meaning market, people bought it, before you could get any money in there, which was not quite true, of course, but it was really tough for a while. And then um, along comes the the so-called wave that we're experiencing in Heights right now. And all of a sudden, a lot of people realized they had to do C and uh, A's to really succeed. Sequoia is known, for instance, for doing huge deals. But if you look carefully at their portfolio, they still do a disproportionately high number of the really early stage deals. And so I also have others. The market is so gigantic that now we get specialized VC firms. And that's a new one. We haven't had that before. How do you
2: measure for WoW or how do you design for WoW?
1: Yeah, would that, you end up having to do it how do you get do tangible
2: is, advice? It's, it's so tangible on market size. It's so tangible on building the right people culture yeah. or
1: interviewing a founder for the right skills. But I mean, don't you don't you just have to see it
2: to find out? If yeah, you class?
1: have to be able to articulate it. I'll say in some form, whether it's physical or uh, mental, uh, graphical or otherwise. Actually, have real people respond to it. There are some new tools that are helping do that. But um, I remember that. Um, There were people that would take pieces of wood and about hand size, cover it with a piece of paper and draw a picture of the handheld electronic device, and then fly out at Silicon Valley to... The Jeff Hawkins story. Yeah, exactly. And I know Jeff really well, and try it out. And what we're doing today, I had a startup I'm helping now, and um, the stand-in CMO has a guy that... Takes the, goes into this uh, brand new marketplace, it's a life science thing, consumer health, and looks for patterns of responses to phrases and um, terminology that's specifically related to this particular kind of a product, and looks for patterns of people that are responding and communicating on that, all available because of internet big data days, and then can do the equivalent of what we used to call focus groups. To see if, oh well, yeah, that category looks like the yoga and yogurt mom up in Marin County. That one looks like your classic New York City uh, single guy. That one looks like your Midwest farmer and so forth. And so that's how you then get your categories identified for your, I call them bowling pins. You want to target and then consider lining them up. And when that's done, that's just, you know, technical data then you've got to pick the positioning terminology and phraseology that's going to focus the marketing communication message on the one single thing that you want the brand to stand for when it finally becomes branded it takes a good 10 12 years to truly brand something get started trying earlier but um, ipod for instance took 14 years and so you end up with needing to decide what the the brand should stand for and that begs the question, what should the name be for the brand? And this is where the marketing wisdom comes in. And it's really tough. Engineers will classically say, well, we're going to have more features than anybody else. All right, we got 12. They only got three. Or Ours are better than theirs. Well, nobody wins a feature war. Because as soon as somebody's got six, somebody else comes out with two more, and then somebody duplicates yours and so forth. You've got to have uniqueness that stands out.
2: rule of thumb that's sometimes used to encapsulate this as a product that's 10 times better than anything else out there. Yeah. And if you can see that in the eyes of your customer, or on the first orders on your website, or in the first meetings with your key accounts, then you know you might be onto something.
1: You've got to try, and that's so often why the first product gets quickly identified as product two or pulled from the marketplace and suddenly is something that's quite different along the way, whether you call it pivot or morph. And that part of you know short-term risk-taking is another one of the patterns that Silicon Valley style process uh, has succeeded with. They don't wait for a three-year plan to be executed over three years. It's over three months. And that way, your, your very good point is what does marketing need to do? It needs to find the customers. That's the job. Where are they? What do they want? What triggers them? What gets them excited? Ripping and roaring and tweeting about
2: it. <laughs> Now, I can't let you uh, get away without giving me what I think are some of the most valuable rubrics and tables to come from your early work around financing and the sequence of financing. Because if you've got a market and people and you've got a product, the financing risk and the financing journey of the company is classic. Now, I know there's more zeros on companies these days, but other ways, there are also fewer zeros in the input cost to get things going. And it's Funny how often entrepreneurs and maybe sometimes fledgling VCs think that every financing round is some kind of negotiation. It really isn't. There seems to be a 1,000 times repeated process that gets tweaked a bit as we go, and maybe the names of the rounds change from A to seed to pre seed or whatever. But it seems the same proportions and ratios exist. You know, these days, if you can't find a few hundred thousand dollars to get moving, no one else will give you a big check. Maybe the first real check you'll get is a million or two, and you'll have to get somewhere, and you'll raise five or eight, and every one of those financings will take 20 or 30% of your company until you're so late and so close to an exit that people are only taking 10% of whatever the financing
1: is. So how would you sketch those those rough numbers? Those are the ones that are usually five. The um, lifetime investment for a company that's a startup should have the potential to produce an aggregate weighted average total of multiple of at least ten times what one dollar in went for. If you're going to finance a new round every year, and that's roughly about right, industry after industry, that means with the risk super high at the beginning, after the first two or three rounds, you're pretty much finished. You'll know pretty much what the is going to be after that. That's your most expensive form of money along the way and so i tell people start at the end start at the liquidity event whether it's five years out or ten years out that's the initial public offering and work backwards price around each prior year all the way back to the very beginning and then look at the numbers the roi for each investor that would come in at those rounds and if you can produce a portfolio. Um, every one of those rounds, as though there was only one investor that's going to crank out a potential of at least ten, you got yourself a financing plan. And those numbers are fairly easy to do along the way: compound return and so forth along the way. So working
2: backwards, let's say for a market we pick that's worth 100 billion dollars in revenue. Let's say uh, U.S. advertising, which I think mm-hmm. is around that size. If you think you can start a business that'll be the winner. I guess you'll end up with 30 billion of revenue. If it's a yep. decent business, you should be able to make 15 or 20% EBITDA. Yep. Which I guess is 5 billion. And, uh, if you're valued the way people value things, 5 billion times 10 or 20 is the value of your business, 50 to 100. Yep. And that business is going to need to take an investment of 5 billion to get there. And it would fit your rubric. Yep. You divide that up over 4 or 5 financings over 5 to 10 years. Most of it's at the end. Each round, I guess, is successively larger. Yep. It's almost a power law ratio, right? You raise like...
1: Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And then you just know the price of every time. Yeah. I mean, it's roughly, it's it's surprising, but roughly doubling the price every single round um, seems to produce the numbers people end up with along the way. I'm still not quite so sure. The other metric I'll mention And then that tells you
2: a lot about investors, too, right? I mean, it tells you that an investor in the seed stage is going to do 100 deals, an investor in the late stage is going to do two.
1: And the risk of failure is changing as time goes on. I've seen the portfolios of the endowments, the pension funds, the private uh, groups along the way. And, uh, boy, people don't walk on water for very long. Um, these things settle down into these the numbers and ROIs, and you hear all of these sensational numbers, but you don't hear the ones that follow on or ones before along the way. And so the Is money the market's founders? massive, and it settles down. It takes its pattern. Do
2: founders walk on water?
1: No, not Are really. Some get generational lucky. generational geniuses? No, somebody gets lucky along the way once in a while with a, a quick run to something. But um, over the longer term, it's a slog, and uh, the numbers uh, prevail along the
2: way. So there's no he, hot hand. We should assume about a founder who's done something great that their next one will fail.
1: Yep, they revert revert I, I, yep. It's like turnaround artists in the corporate 500s. Their chances of succeeding in the second round are less than 15%, the second uh, turnaround. And startups, it's really true. Boy, I tell you, the first time you think you walked on water, but you hopped on the surfboard and a wave took you into the beach, you think you're a real entrepreneur now. And so you go off with this next cool idea. Well, and the advice
2: that a founder should take from that is when you're riding the wave, this is probably it.
1: <laughs> Do not screw
2: up. That's right. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's, that's right. The
2: whole way. Wow. And so have you found that in your work, people are now deploying a rules based process that
1: pays respect to your findings? Well, what I find is that, uh, like many times, uh, people are destined to learn the hard way. People are often in such a hurry that's a problem. People are often listening to what the media writes, and they write only about the extremes of success. Everybody that wins is a bootstrap. Everybody that wins is goes to a giant venture capital. Everybody, everybody, everybody. That ends up um, being the sole digestion that they take, and they don't know as a result what happens when they encounter what they're going to encounter. And That's what I'm deciding to try to write about in this final book here about encounters you're going to run into, but uh, the old What's saying different you're different not, accounts? well, I haven't quite figured it out you know, along the way. Um, along the way, it's um, maybe the old saying will be a clue.
2: <laughs>
1: well, the um, current emphasis really is startup encounters and responses. And um, just simple example, we say that you're not a a, uh, a real entrepreneur till you miss payroll. And that's usually devastating for the first time entrepreneur. There's also a saying, you're not a real venture capitalist till you lost LOST $20 million. Hold life support on it. These things, first-timers are not prepared for by reading all that stuff out there.
2: Uh, I've got a big smile on my face because I've been there, and I know. (laughs) And I've been there with other guys who haven't been. (laughs) And it's just a huge, huge difference. Thank you so much for making time to talk with me about all this. I know your time is limited. I bet if I
1: seduced you, we could go for two more hours.
2: Well, it's a lot
1: of fun, yeah. as you can tell from my voice, to talk to people that are eager to continue to, to challenge and think about how to make it better. That's my original purpose in doing this. So Engineers would get a better deal. They were getting taken to the cleaners by people with money. Now we know so much. and so the, Now the real question, I think, is, okay, we refine our ideas. Yeah, got it. Let's re- avoid repeating <laughs> the lessons that we learned painfully in the past firsthand. The old saying, Americans say, is uh, uh, experience is cheap as secondhand. Japanese <laughs> say, you know, it's easy to stand an egg in the end once you learn the first time. Let's do that. Let's spread this stuff. Let's keep your podcast focusing on delivering. Hey, we learned that already. Apply it now. Yeah, there are some new things. Let's try those. But let's keep in mind, there's some real solid things that can really improve your chances of succeeding.
2: Thank you so much for joining me on In The Know.
1: My pleasure.